Hey, Yogi, Sarah Burchard here, and you are listening to Yoga Unplugged Conversations, a show dedicated to helping you grow, thrive, and gracefully make tough life decisions so you can lead a happier, healthier life. On this show, we discuss common challenges that everyone can relate to and apply philosophy and practical tools that have been proven to be effective solutions. Today, we are talking about bhakti yoga, the yoga of love and devotion. This idea that to receive more love, you must give more love away. The inquiry then becomes, can this practice actually bring more peace and love into my life? To answer that question, I have invited Brenda Kwan on the show today. Brenda completed her 200-hour yoga teacher training with Mary Bastian, Murti Hauer, and our very own Jennifer Reuter at Open Space Yoga in Honolulu. She completed her 500-hour teacher training with Rod Stryker, studied Amrit Yoga Nidra with Kamini Desai, restorative yoga with Judith Lazader, and Ayurveda with Catherine Templeton from the Himalayan Institute and Dr. Robert Svoboda, and has a background as a Reiki master and energy worker. Brenda is also an award-winning writer with over 25 years of teaching, writing, and literature. I personally practice yoga with Brenda twice a week and have found her teachings to be instrumental to the quality of my life. As a poet, she has the ability to take you on a spiritual journey using incredibly beautiful imagery. And as I have shared with others before, her words are so moving, they have often brought me to tears. She takes you deep and reminds you that it's not only okay to rest and take time to get recentered, but also that you are perfect and complete just the way you are. It is with great gratitude and honor that I introduce her today. Brenda, welcome to the show, girlfriend. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for saying such lovely things. Of course. Um, I'd like to start, if I may, by having you share with our listeners what brought you to yoga and what is it about this practice that keeps drawing you deeper and deeper in? Um, Really good question. You know, I started off with a lot of energy work. So, you know, you'd mentioned the Reiki master. I'd also done some pranic healing, a little bit of sound therapy. And so my lens was really through energy. And I did the sort of typical overworking burnout thing. And in 2008, I had a major crash and I had to take medical leave from my job, which is a teaching at HCC. And I found that at that time, the only thing that was really, really working was yoga. And eventually I figured out it's because it was a component of not just physical movement, but energetic movement and mind. And so it's the first time yoga really came together for me that I understood it was all of these things together. And that was very powerful. I had played with yoga here and there before that, but it wasn't until that time I got sick that I really understood what a huge science and practice it really was. Yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I think a lot of people relate to yoga through some sort of healing process. Right. So what is bhakti yoga? So bhakti, um, I think when people hear bhakti yoga now, they think about things like uh, kirtan, you know, which is devotional singing, and you're in a group and you're singing to God and the divine, and that's definitely such a powerful aspect of it. Uh, that's what Krishna Das does, and it's very, very transportive. It really comes from the idea, though, that the way to the divine is through the heart and through love, and It is love of others, but above all, it's love of the divine. And the love is something that is very heart-centered. It's not emotional. It's a deep connection to the idea that 
everything around you, in you, just everything is the divine. So it's really the pathway, you know, to evolution. And out of the different types of yoga, it's considered the fastest way to evolve because it is so pure. Hmm. You recently went to a retreat on Maui with Krishna Das. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? So that was amazing. Yeah, I'd love to. That was Ram Das's last retreat. And for whatever reason, I'd never gone before. And because my teacher, Dr. Svoboda, was going to be there, I thought this is the time to go. And little did we know that that was going to be two weeks before Ram Das transitioned out of his body. So many things happened there. Both Ram Das and Krishna Das are bhakti yogis. You know, they believe in love and devotion. And for Krishna Das, one thing that really struck me was that as we were doing kirtan every night, it was clear that he's not performing. So I think when you go to see him sometimes, or at least for me, I would think, oh, I get to listen to him play and I get to sing along. But that's not really it. His chanting is his practice. And he was told by Maharaji that he would be saved only if he chanted and he chanted with other people specifically. So when you're in his presence, you're not kind of just going along for the ride. You are his practice. And I think that's why chanting with him is so, so powerful, you know, because that is his connection to God. Yeah. You're like right there with him inside of his mind almost. Exactly. And Maharaji's there. You can feel that presence. And it was the same with Ram Das, you know, I've studied him for a long time, but there's something about having him so close to being only spirit, where his body really is a shell, that the spirit is so tangible and so powerful. You know, he's in a wheelchair. He looks like a skeleton. You know, he doesn't really speak. It's all the physical things are really just falling away. And because of that, he's completely radiant. So you're able to feel... um, the love of Maharaji very clearly because to me it wasn't being filtered or it didn't have to go through the layers of the body. It was just right there. And yeah. and that's transformative. Yeah. It's not like a show being put on. It's it's not like a yes. lecture. It's not like a it's not even like a class, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're there to practice, you know, and, yeah. and the thing about you know bhakti and the divine you know, I could talk a little bit more about why the divine is in everything. But to get to this first, when you're around that kind of love, it's familiar. There's something in you that recognizes it, even if you've never experienced it before. And that was that was really what happened to me, where just with the experiences I've had, I did not know what it was like to have someone gaze at you with unconditional love. And when you uh... see it, I I just thought, oh God, it was like going home. I felt like that's what it's like, Hmm. you know? It wasn't complicated by, um, you know, the parent-child relationship or, you know, the significant other relationship or anything else. It was just so pure. And it felt like it melted my heart. So you're right. It's not a class. It's an experience. Yeah. Because being around that type of energy will wake up your own. And that's part of bhakti yoga too, is we all have it. And when you resonate it, others pick up on it and it begins to resonate in them as well. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yes. The ripple effect. Oh my gosh. It's so powerful. And, and the divine in everything. So, you know, I have this love of quantum physics of what little I know about it because it completely explains a lot of what yoga is. And yoga is a science, it's not a religion. 
it's a science of, of how to evolve, you know. Mm -hmm. I think people get it confused with Hinduism sometimes, and Hinduism is a religious practice. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yoga is spiritual in the sense that spirituality is really the belief that we are spirit, which is we're not bodies, we're not matter, we are spirit, we're energy. And quantum physics is completely all about energy, that we are all vibrational particles, and we move at different vibrations. And everything we do or say is that rearrangement of particle, you know? Mm -hmm. And that thing that creates the particles and arranges them into you or me or, you know, a light or a plant or a tree, whatever, that thing is the divine. Some people call it the creation principle and some people call it Allah and some people call it God and it goes by many names. But that's the significance, that intelligence that we can't explain, that puts everything together, that, you know, allows a baby to form in the fetus, that that's God, that's the divine. And yeah. so when you say that you see the divine in everything, it really means that you don't get tricked by form, that you don't see things around you as inanimate. On a quantum physical level, they are animate. It's vibrating particles. And when you can see that, it really changes your lens on so many things. You get a little bit more, well, a lot more tolerant of change. You know, change isn't disruption or chaos. That's actually the dance of the particles, you know. So quantum physics was just such a beautiful way for me to get it. There was a part of my brain, the academic, that needed to see it in scientific language. And when I got it, it really, really, really made sense to me. Well, it also takes a lot of fear of death and things like that and just things yeah. ending in general out of the equation because oh yeah you know I love something that you've told me before is like <laughs> we're all just a bunch of dead bodies walking around <laughs> <laughs> or something like that <laughs> that tune but I you told me that once and it really stuck with me I'm like think about it like that it's a lot less like it, you don't take life so seriously anymore. You, don't, you don't um and I have to give credit um so that was actually my friend Sydney Louie um dear friend shout out once to in Sid. a while yeah, who every once in a while will stop and say, you know, sometimes I think we're all already dead. And this is all a dream. And it just trips you out really hard. But, you know, it's incredibly yogic. And I don't know yeah. if she realizes that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just, before we like start digging into all these concepts and stuff, like I really mm -hmm. want to get into like unconditional love and, and all these things. But would you mind telling the story of Baba and Hanuman? Oh, my gosh. Um Oh, it's such a beautiful relationship. Um, so Hanuman is the, I guess he's known as the monkey king. And in the Ramayana, which is the epic story about Sita and Ram, Hanuman is really the one who's responsible for their reuniting in the end. And a brief overview of the story is that Sita, who is Ram's wife, is stolen away by Ravana. And eventually Hanuman is the one who's able to find her. And so Ram goes over, he rescues Sita. The symbolic meaning of that is that Ram is the divine masculine and Sita is the divine feminine. They're also known as, if you know yoga, uh, Shiva and Shakti mm -hmm. or uh, the Kundalini rising. And Hanuman being the son of the wind represents the breath. 
So the teaching, the esoteric teaching is that the breath is really what allows the lovers to be reunited, meaning that the breath is what allows us to integrate, to be our whole selves. So sun and moon, left and right, all the dualities, they, they become married, you know, so it's the sacred breath. Hanuman was the greatest devotee of Ram. And near the end of the Ramayana, he, Hanuman opens his chest and Ram sees that on his heart is written his name over and over and over again. And his depth of devotion to Ram is so deep that it transcends lifetimes, it transcends any conditions. And so when you worship and you're a devotee of Ram, they say that you are automatically loved by Hanuman. And when you're a devotee of Hanuman, then you're automatically loved by Ram. So these figures were very, very important to Maharaji. And that's how uh, Ram Das or Baba and Krishna Das became Hanuman devotees as well. It's such a big story. I don't know if that really does it justice. But it's the oh, basic. I think it does. I yeah. think it does. I think it's an important part of bhakti yoga. And so mm -hmm. people have that in the background, especially because I know that for people who may come to your class, for example, like you use mm -hmm. a lot of this story interweaved throughout some of the classes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about the difference between love and desire. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to start diving into a little bit of romantic relationships for this. And I know that like bhakti yoga is bigger than, than that picture, but I think uh -huh. that this is really, this is an important part of it too. Yeah. I think that the lines of need and love can often get blurred. And because need comes with a desire to get something in return, it can sometimes make the love in a relationship convoluted. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You see this sometimes in relationships where one person's needs aren't getting completely met and they start to almost resent the other person because they aren't right. receiving love and the way they want right. it. Or they start manipulating the person or the situation, maybe not intentionally, but they are so focused uh -huh. on getting their needs met, filling this you know bottomless pit that will never mm -hmm. be filled, that they don't see what is actually best for them and the other person. Mm -hmm. And you know, why do you think it is so difficult for us sometimes to just love unconditionally without needing something in return? Right. Um, oh my goodness. Uh, so human love is really, really messy. It's so messy because we're dealing with karma. We're also dealing with what Ram Dass calls personalities or these roles that we take on and who we think we're supposed to be. And all of those things become veils on the light of the heart of unconditional love. So a lot of times in relationships, we're aspiring to that love, but we're actually dancing around in our roles and things, the light is getting distorted. And that distortion ends up making you feel that you're not whole or complete. When someone else inspires a love in you, then you start thinking it's because of that other person that I feel a love. Without that person, I'm not complete. I can't feel it unless other person's there. Mm -hmm. And in yoga, that's part of the avidya or unclear seeing, which is that you need something else aside your own soul, you know, to feel that love. So you're chasing after the shadow instead of the real thing, you know? And as long as you become dependent on someone else, you're never going to look in the right place, which is inside. So... One of the things I found in my practice was that when you experience that divine love and 
you know, there's no recipe for how to feel it. And I'm sure you felt it, right? You know, it, it comes to you in these moments where you're just overwhelmed. You know, when you have that, then you start going, okay, uh, human love is flawed and it's beautifully flawed because we're supposed to experience all these complications, but let's not take it so seriously because I have the real thing. You know, the real thing comes from the divine mother or from God or what it is. When you have that foundation, then you're just not so, you're not grabbing onto someone to hold you up, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that kind of dependency is erased. And I also think that kind of dependency is, is doomed to make a relationship impure. I don't know if that's the right word or not. It was, it's a lot of stress on it. It's a lot of stress. Yeah. That's yeah. a better word. Right. You know, cause again, you're just not looking in the right place for your foundation. It's like, you know, know, the person yeah. means so well, they're like, I, but I love yeah. you so much, you know? And yeah. it's like, yeah. it's almost like, and I don't want to call it like a bad thing, but it's almost like in a way, like not as a desirable quality after a certain point, because you're like almost losing yourself. Yes. And when you do that, you're not whole for the other person anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of the times that's why you get attracted to somebody in the first place because like they're like this amazing person on their own, Mm -hmm. right? And you're like, oh, I want Mm -hmm. some of that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But then when they kind of lose themselves and now it's just all about you and they let go of loving themselves a hundred percent. And yeah, it's, it's, it gets really tricky. It is tricky. Um, you know, and, and shout out to Sima Wilson, um, psychologist, but you know, the way that she explains it in psychology terms is that when you have a relationship, you know, one partner says, let me take care of myself for you and you take care of yourself for me, you know? Mm, So you're not putting that, it's so good, right? So you're not putting that kind of responsibility um, and unfairly too on another person. Um, I've definitely been on both sides of that. It's Mm -hmm. not fun, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, you have to feel it, at least for me, you have to feel it in its divine form for you to then be able to share it with other people. And it does in a way that's sort of magic. So for instance, after I saw Ram Das and I received Darshan or, you know, just that blessing from him, I had this really strange and what I thought was kind of irritating <laughs> development, uh, which was that when I was upset with somebody, I couldn't, I couldn't hate that person, you know? So sometimes when someone does you wrong and you just want to pull out all your insults and just go, you know, what's wrong with that person is this, this, and this, and this. And it kind of feels good to be angry, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just found I couldn't do that. And I was like, wait a second, you know what I mean? And all I could do was go, uh, that's a person in pain. And it was such a shift yeah. because I started realizing that those kinds of behaviors do come from pain. And yes. then I also started realizing, yeah, that on a soul level, this person and I were probably okay. And on a karmic level, we're playing things out. It just depersonalized the whole thing in a way that I could seriously, seriously have love for this person who was actually doing quite a lot of harm, you know, to, to myself and others. That was very strange. I found that in, so you know that I was listening to true crime podcasts as a spiritual practice, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Why don't you fill people in so they understand? Yeah. Yeah, so I, <laughs> um, so Joy Furushima got me into my favorite murder, and I initially started listening to it because 
I had a hard time with darkness and I was thinking, is there a way for me to hold my light in darkness? And so I would listen to these terrible stories, right? And eventually went through these periods of feeling really, really scared. Like there was a point where, you know, as soon as I got home and parked my car, I, I ran to the lobby door because I thought, I don't know if someone's hiding behind my car and is going to kill me. Oh, no. You know? So, yeah, I was watching all these responses. So, so that happened. And, you know, just like trust no one, you know, those kinds of things were going yeah. And then eventually it's like I was able to rest with the darkness. Then the next stage was having tremendous compassion for um, the victims, you know, and the terrible pain they went through. And where it started morphing to recently, and it, this was part of uh, the outcome of the bhakti practice, was having compassion for the killers, the murderers, you know. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about acting out of pain. There's a lot of, when you hear the backstory, there's a lot of pain. And it does not make it okay, but it makes you see the situation more clearly than to just say, oh, that person's pure evil. Yeah. That's, that's not all that's going on. And it also makes you compassionate in the Tibetan sense that in our lifetimes, you know, we've all been the murderer, we've all been the rapist, we've all been the thief, you know, we've all been the betrayer. And the judgment, you realize, has no good. There's no effect. You can judge all you want. It's not going to make a situation better. Mm -hmm. But what you can do is love and feel compassion. And that changes the energetics of things. It's very far reaching. And and Dr. Svoboda talks about how it reaches over actually incarnations and lifetimes to have that vibration. But you let go of the judging, you know? And so when you have a bhakti practice, you find that it bleeds into many, many other areas of your life. I think it's much harder to find that feeling of bhakti with humans, just because again, we're so delightfully flawed, you know? (laughs) But the more you do it, the easier it is. It's, it's oh yeah, it's one of those reprogramming the brain yeah. things, you know. Absolutely, you're, you're just you know, it's like a with the what's the meditation practice, the meta or the loving yeah. kindness, right? Loving kindness, yeah, yeah, where you meditate on love, and this becomes your default mode. It's exactly that's exactly what I was going to say. It's your default, yeah. yeah. It's your preset, yeah, yeah. I think also when it comes to relationships that could get romantic, like maybe like a, somebody that you know, but it's not your partner, it's not your, somebody you're dating, mm-hmm. but somebody that it, you know, it could get romantic. There's also an element of responsibility you need to consider both for yourself and for the other person and considering what would happen if you gave into temptation before doing it and giving oh, okay. up, yeah, and yeah, giving yeah. up the... Giving up, like fulfilling the pleasure that you desire in order to focus on what's right and what, what oh, yeah, 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 more loving. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, how many times have you turned down a date or a kiss from someone you're attracted Never. to? Never. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm because, just well, kidding. I mean, it's really hard, right? Because <laughs> right. you're, because, but you do because you know in your gut that it would ruin your friendship or mm-hmm. somebody would end up being hurt. I mean, that I feel like is an act of love and devotion to the practice mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and, and to your to your higher self, um, you know, Rod Stryker was the person who made it really clear for me. So when you're doing these tantric practices and, you know, you're clearing energetic pathways, uh, it doesn't mean you don't have desires. You're just not ruled by them. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to make your decisions because you're bigger than the desires, you know? 
Mm-hmm. You know, which is not to say desire is bad. You know, in fact, you and I have talked about how you need desire in your life. It's our desire to be, you know, closer to God and to be better people that fuels a lot of our actions. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's our desire to let our creativity flourish that makes us, you know, choose some of the things that we do. Desire for another person, it's it's so layered, you know, uh, that I don't think we have to judge it, but whether you want to give into it or not is a reflection, I think, of the stuff that you carry around, right? Yeah. When When you're pretty clear, you know, and you've got a pretty strong practice, your desire is there and you look at it and you're like, there it is, you know, but it's not like it's waving its feathers at you and offering you all kinds of riches and treasures if you go over there, you know, you're just like, okay, there it is. There's the desire. And it just doesn't grab you at all. Yeah. I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> <laughs> or so I've read. I'm going to be, be honest. <laughs> I hear that's the case. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> On the other side. <laughs> right. 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 That's um, what he says. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what but, do uh-huh. you, okay, let's, you know, and let's just talk about if that does happen and things do go wrong or you're in a relationship for a long time and things mm-hmm. go wrong. Yeah. What do you tell people who are suffering from a broken heart? Oh man. Um, that's so rough. You know, when I was a kid, uh, my mom used to say that your heart breaks in order to get bigger. And even, I think that was at my first crush. I must've been like 12 or 13. And even my little prepubescent self got it. You know, I understood Mm -hmm. it. And as I, you know, it's a really beautiful way to phrase things. And as I got older, it made more and more sense. You know, when I got to yoga, it made more and more sense. It doesn't make it feel better. I don't know. What would I say? It's, it's like, um, it does in a way though. It's, yeah. Does it? I I mean, it doesn't in the moment, I guess, but, but when you do sit back to think about it and you think Mm -hmm. about, Oh, well I have to, you don't have to, but you know, when things break and they get built up again, they get stronger. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's this process of life, you know, and your heart Mm -hmm. gets broken over all kinds of things. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a person you're in love with who breaks your heart. Your heart can get broken by, you know, like shrinking your favorite pair of jeans or something. (laughs) Right, uh, right, right, right. (laughs) But, um, I, but I think to know that is very comforting. It's a positive spin on it. Your heart breaks, but with the broken heart, you're letting in more of this light that will attract more love. Right, right. Um, and, and you have to be able to see it that way. I think the way that I would sort of backstory that is that I think the number one people, number one reason people might suffer a lot is because somehow we picked up this idea that a good life is a perfect life, you know, where everything goes great, you know? Yeah. Um, but okay, so first of all, it doesn't happen where part of nature and nature doesn't work that way either. It's a complete illusion, you know? So first of all, it doesn't exist. Uh, And even if it did, how would you be growing? You know, it's things have to be tempered, you know, they have to be malleable. They have to be, you know, broken in all kinds of things in order to change and grow. Right. And you would have the most spiritually undeveloped person, I think, right? If you go from beginning to end and everything was just fabulous all the time. And so really the purpose of life then is to, for me, it's to evolve, right? And to learn. 
So stuff is going to happen. And instead of thinking I screwed up and that was a bad relationship or that was a bad choice, it's like, let me, let me look at what I did. And in this human incarnation as a soul watching myself, well, isn't that interesting that I did that? And I wonder why I responded that way. And maybe I could have done this, you know? So the mistakes are there, but you try not to take them too seriously. Mm -hmm. And as Dr. Svoboda says, you try not to make the same ones over and over again, you know? Uh, So the life or death thing about heartbreak really comes back to what you're saying about, you know, just seeing the other person and being dependent on them for your ability to feel love. When you're off base with that, then things are going to feel unstable. So, you know, I call it like anchoring your boat to a piece of seaweed instead of the seafloor, you know, nothing's going to be stable. That is such yeah. A so it's point. like a, you know, so you have to kind of go to the root of it. Right. You know, which is, am I really dependent on this other person for love or do I just have it in me? And if I have it in me, how do I flourish it? Uh, make it flourish. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've heard before and, and this, this is coming from people who have not practice this sort of philosophy or aren't familiar with it, that people who are they're grounded in themselves and, and they mm-hmm. have they've got enough love in themselves where they don't necessarily like need it from another person, they mm-hmm. almost come off as being cold. And huh. yeah, and I don't see it that way, but I could see where somebody who doesn't understand, like maybe they're used to somebody needing them or vice versa and constantly getting that feedback that they need you or they love you. And, and when somebody's sort of secure and not secure, but when, you know, mm-hmm. when you're good with yourself, you, mm-hmm. you don't need that as much. Mm-hmm. It's still nice to hear. It's still nice to say, but I guess like that's where they, they maybe they misconstrue where they're coming off as cold. Huh? Yeah. Tell me more about the cold part. Like, you know, I get the idea that while wow, this person doesn't seem to want me right as much as I want I them want. right yeah. right um but but tell me more about the cold part just as like not feeling as connected to them as they are to the other person mm-hmm. I guess it would just be like um, they don't they don't need them you know and and I don't yeah. I don't feel like it's like that I feel like because I right, right. embrace this this idea of bhakti yoga and mm-hmm. I just feel like I have so much love for everybody in my life everything yeah it shows you're definitely that kind of person thank you and but it's just kind of like something I embody so it's not I don't Mm. feel like always the need to really say it fully I guess and maybe people just need to hear it wow you know that's a that's a really interesting thing um I try not to worry and you know it's a constant practice right try not to worry about how are the people in interpret my behavior Mm. because how we see things is so much a function of what kind of lenses we have. And, you know, I could smile at someone and someone could say, well, what are you smiling at? You know, (laughs) Oh, smiling at you. But they're like, don't make fun of me. You you think I'm a clown or, you know, right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I, I try not to worry too much about how other people are interpreting things. And I also want to believe that if that person is coming to you with some kind of dependency and depending back on that person is 
good for neither of you, then, you know, it is the sattvic thing. It is the loving thing not to engage in that, you know, because that way the other person has to figure out, well, where do I get that love from? You know, mm-hmm. oh, maybe it's inside of me or maybe it's in that bright, new, shiny car. I don't know. But, you know, it's like you're not going to be the, um, the false root, you know, of the love. And then I think the idealist part of me wants to think that because you are that kind of person, you're so enthusiastic about people and things and ideas and that love is very inspiring. And so if someone is not going to get that from you romantically, I want to think that that kind of shine is awakening something in that person who then might be able to shine that too, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. There was a, the, I think I might've shared this before, but there was a, um, uh, I don't remember her name, but I was listening to a podcast and there is a reverend who is LGBTQ, African-American, and she was just talking about how your practice is, you know, it's like you, we have all these things that stick to us, right? So you walk through and it's like you're like Velcro and things are sticking to you. But with practice, you start to remove, you know, the barbs and the practice means eventually you start to move around and things don't stick to you, you know? Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was such a beautiful way to think of it. So in that case, even if someone were trying to latch on to you, they wouldn't be able to, you know? Huh. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, you know, th- this practice can be a little bit intimidating for people in a way, even though it seems like you're like, why wouldn't everybody just want to like love everything, you know? But, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. you know, it, it's, it makes you very vulnerable and people oh, are yeah. either too scared to be vulnerable or they haven't embraced, fully embraced the concepts yet. I think everyone who comes to your classes is pretty on board already with this philosophy, but so what about people who, that you encounter outside of the yoga studio who sort of blow this stuff off or <laughs> change their mind? Or is it just um, kind of like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, So, you know, it's funny that you're saying about you have to be vulnerable because don't you find that most people who come to yoga for serious practice have been broken? Yes. You know, it's like, we, we've just been broken. There's just almost like, there's no pretense, you know, and, and that's where I think you have to be to be really open for some of this stuff, you know, yeah. you have to have suffered, you know, you have to have gone through all of those disappointments and found out that the things that you thought were concrete are just, you know, dust. Otherwise you'll never be able to see beyond the concrete, you know, yeah. and those are the people you teach for. If they don't get it, they don't get it. They will in another lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, I've said this before, and I always just thought it was so beautifully romantic that I believe the teachings say it takes 10,000 lifetimes to even come to the practice of yoga. Hmm. So you're just thinking, hey, I remember when I was like you, you know, <laughs> so you do you and enjoy the lifetime. We'll get there, you know. Yeah. But for the people who don't have the practice, the way that I see it is, you know, so I teach at community college, you know, and I teach composition. And it's not an easy job because writing is intensely personal. You know, people are so afraid of English classes because when people judge your writing, they're judging you. I mean, there's so many things that go on, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to, first of all, make people feel safe, you know? When they're safe, then they'll open up. And, And part of that safety is to let them know that they're loved. Uh, you're not going to make fun of them. In no way would you ever call them stupid. 
you're not judging them, you're coaching them. So, hey, you know, this paragraph doesn't quite make sense. What if we tried doing this, you know? So that's your bhakti, that's your practice. And they may not have the language for it, but what they'll say is like, you were super supportive. You know, for the first time I felt like I could express myself, you know, so you have to kind of listen underneath the words yeah. instead of the actual words themselves. And, and you'll be like, ah, oh, they got it, you know? And yeah. it's really neat to see people when they get into that place of trust and just, it's, yeah. it's like owning your voice. It's really beautiful. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, as a writer, I, I yeah, mean, yeah, you know, I right. totally hear that. I mean, it, it is mm-hmm. very, it's very scary when you hit publish and uh, oh, right. like, oh, there it is, you know, there it is. Yeah. Getting people to feel safe is definitely a huge part of bhakti yoga and, and oh yeah. Love. And, and that's also part of honoring that we're all one. So it's like, yes, you're writing is like my writing you know what i mean it's like it's all the same same, source. All the same thing yeah yeah same source yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know and that safety is is really letting go of judgment you know because you know how many people are so afraid to come to yoga right and the first thing they say is you know but i'm so not flexible and <laughs> and you're like oh i don't even know how to explain to you that's the last thing you yeah. need to be to come to class you yeah. know well and then yeah. it's like well you're actually Red brain is not flexible. That's why you're- Yes. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. But it will be. Just keep coming. Right. Right. You know, and, and if you just get to a space where someone is not judged, uh, beautiful things happen, you know? So, yeah. Let's talk about tools for someone who wants to embody this practice more. Like right off the bat, I think of meditation. When we talked about meta meditation. Yeah. Um, gratitude journaling, I think is another one. Um, yeah. By continually reflecting on things and people you're grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are some other practices you recommend? Um, you know, so like I'm a really big fan of roots, you know, meaning go, go to the source and figure out where the foundation is and everything else will grow out of that, you know? And I really, really love my meditations what I didn't realize until recently is how different it felt for me to meditate at the third eye or Guru Chakra versus the heart. And neither is wrong. There is a gravitation towards, you know, different types of meditation because that's your path that all leads home, you know? But the striking thing for me is that when I started dropping my awareness into my heart, so even sitting in meditation, instead of focusing on the non-dual point of the third eye just dropped into the heart, And then all of a sudden, it's like that sensation that you sometimes get when you're heartbroken. You know how it feels like your heart is almost, I don't know, it's not a spasm, but there's just this sensation at your heart, your chest, you know, when you're heartbroken. That's like it's getting like stepped on, like it's heavy, like it's getting Um, pressed. No, it kind of feels like a, um, wow, I feel really weird saying this, but um, it's like a little orgasm at the heart. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay, wait, to, just to back myself up, there is, a, <laughs> there is a, <laughs> uh, you know, St. Saint, Saint Teresa's, I think the ecstasy of St. Teresa, you know, where she's being pierced in the heart by the arrow of God, but she looks like she's having an orgasm. So I'm just saying that I'm not just making this up, but, um, <laughs> okay. so, but, but it's, <laughs> it's like a shiver. Um, it's, it's sort of beautiful and delightful and, and it's like your heart is awake and I can actually conjure that feeling now, which I just was really shocked by. 
it's occurrence. And so when you meditate and you just go to the heart and you rest in the spiritual heart, and that's where you begin to sense things, and that's where you begin to hear your mantra coming to you. You're not chanting, it's coming to you. Hmm. That root stuff will make you feel gratitude. That root stuff will make you have compassion for other people's pain. That root will make you look at your own quote unquote flaws as just part of the expression of your individuality, you know? So instead of going from the leaf down to the root, you know, you're going from root to leaf. And so um, that's why recently in classes, I've been really playing a lot of, again, Krishna does Mm -hmm. and asking people to just sit with their eyes closed and hear through the heart instead of the ears and the head. And it's really neat to watch people transform. You know, you can see the shift. Mm -hmm. Uh, The faces change, you know, everything comes softer, you know, so you're looking and feeling through soft eyes and it's, it's beautiful. So I I actually like that. I feel like do that and the rest of it will happen. I think also the, the chanting is part of that too. Mm -hmm. Whatever moves you, Krishna does moves me, you know, some people are moved by opera or whatever it is that is so beautiful to you that you understand, uh, and I'm just going to put God in quotes because I don't have another word for it, but whatever strikes God in you, you know, hold that at your heart and that's that pathway that opens up and then Mm -hmm. you start to see it in everything, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think that that honestly like says it all right there. (laughs) It's a beautiful practice. It really is just something new all the time. Yeah. Before we start wrapping up, do you have anything else you want to add on this topic? Okay. Um, I, I guess because, you know, we were talking about relationships so much. Yeah. I'm truly, truly happy not being partnered right now, which doesn't mean I'm close to it, but I'm truly, truly happy. Uh, so these fears about being alone and things are also part of the video because it's in solitude that you're going to find your greatest spiritual moments and your greatest evolution, you know, Mm. and the space that I feel like I've been given because of my experiences with these amazing teachers and, you know, this practice has made life very, very rich. And there's something really nice about feeling truly that you don't need, like you were saying, you don't need someone else in your life. Were there to come someone, you would want someone to be able to hold that space with you. And if that space is at all compromised, then it's just this very easy choice of saying, hey, you're an amazing person. I need to hold my space, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, you know, don't be afraid of being alone. It's actually a beautiful thing. And it's why mm-hmm. monks go off in caves and yeah. But I mean, it, alone. The mm-hmm. thing is that we're not alone, too. You know? We're not alone, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not alone, yeah. you know, spiritually, and we're not alone physically either yes yeah it's just a matter of how open are you or how closed off are you and and how much are you connecting with the people around you and and right do you see it yeah do you see that everything around you actually is that divine yeah everything Mm -hmm. is the support all the things that you need are are everywhere absolutely Yeah. yeah that's really hard to see when you know when we're talking about broken hearts and breakups and things like that. That's it's really hard to see for the first 
God, I mean, sometimes it takes a long time. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. We got to go through pain. I mean, the shadow part is is the important part of being able to see that amount of light too, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pain's important. Mm -hmm. Well, it's just Mm -hmm. part, it's just part of the human experience. So that's right. We can make it work for us in a way or, Mm -hmm. you know, learn from it, then Mm -hmm. it becomes much, much easier to navigate Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not, you know, I mean, I think I just keep telling myself in those pain moments, like, you know, it's supposed to suck. And here it is. It sucks. <laughs> right. See? It sucks. Yeah. Like right? that, there it is. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. Like that's breakups are supposed to suck and be hard. Like that's, right. that's the feeling that you're supposed to be feeling. If you're not, then there might be something wrong with you. That's right. So you're doing pain. <laughs> absolutely right. You know, it sucks. You know? Right. Right. So, yeah. Well, Brenda, how can our <laughs> listeners connect with you and where can they practice with you if they're on island? Oh, okay. A um, couple classes over in Blue Lotus on Pali. And pretty soon I'm going to be starting a yoga nidra podcast and uh, that's in the works. So I'll give a shout out when that's ready. Oh, that's awesome. So are these going to be recordings that people can listen to? to yeah. To, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So, oh, that's great. So like different lengths and different types of yoga nidra and different, mm-hmm. different things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're shooting for once every month, um, you know, just to work with the cycles in the moon and, you know, different things happening Vedically and all that. So should be fun. Great. I just finished recording a podcast episode with Jennifer about yoga nidra and we, we yeah. were talking about um, different recordings we liked, and you know, I I use them a lot now to yeah, go to so sleep. Good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and during the day too to re-energize. Like if I miss one of your classes, I'll do I'll throw on a recording. If I'm at home, but yeah, I I actually don't know. You know, I don't know if you feel this too, but now I just don't understand how anyone functions without yoga nidra. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's what we were talking about basically. <laughs> I, was I, I doing before this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that could even be a tool for bhakti yoga as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just that reclined, you know, meditation of pure receiving. And yeah, absolutely. Well, great. Well, I'm really excited for that. And people can find you on Instagram too, right? Yes and no. I, I don't. I don't post yogic things. On oh, if you okay. want to see my cats. But, you know, like. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> okay. So other than that, just yeah. go to the, the yoga studios websites is the best. Yeah. That's probably the best thing. Okay. So yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Brenda. Thanks, Sarah. It's just so fun. Now I'd love to hear from all you listeners out there. So please let me know what you thought of the show. And if you have any topics or questions that you'd like me to tackle on the show. The team of Yoga Unplugged and I are here for you, so please let us know. And if you'd like to join in on the conversation with us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at yogaunplugged.org. Find us on Facebook at Yoga Unplugged by Jennifer Reuter. Reuter is spelled R-E-U-T-E-R. Or connect with us on Instagram at yoga underscore unplugged. Thanks for listening, everyone. Namaste.